Greetings to all our listeners and welcome to today's episode of Nigeria, Good People, Great Nation. We are reaching you from the Global Chat Radio Studio, broadcasting from Twat Hill in Western Australia. Our last episode, we started our discussion on what it was like in pre-colonial Nigeria. We aim to complete this today by taking that further and ending at what Nigeria was as at independence. So the years leading to independence in Nigeria, some have said that Nigeria got its independence on a platter of gold. After all, it didn't have to struggle like the people in South Africa did with apartheid. Others have argued differently that the journey to self-governance was not on any road paved with gold at all. I will allow our listeners to make their own judgment based on our jointly looking back and understanding what it was like for Nigeria as a people as it journeyed towards independence. But there is no reason for second guessing. The natural path is for a colonized people to eventually either through peaceful or other means demand the right to self-governance. For a while, British colonial rule was a welcome development. People enjoyed it, at least for the Yoruba people who had been engaged in years of war with each other. So it was a welcome relief when the British entered the Yoruba land, signed an armistice between the warring group and the people widely accepted British rule. But that period of wide acceptance of British rule can conveniently be said to have ended in 1929. And why was that? Well, there are many reasons that one can adduce for that, but let's start with the ideology of the British. The ideology that the Nigerian people were inferior to Europeans and they were in need of civilization under British supervision. Any set of people under such an ideology will start kicking against such. And Nigeria was no different. They kicked against such domination on their own land. As we discussed in the last episode, the colonization of Nigeria did not happen suddenly. It didn't happen overnight. It actually took roughly half a century to complete bringing the different parts of the entity under British rule. Remember, as we said, the land space currently occupied or referred to as Nigeria was popul is populated by people of different backgrounds, of different culture, ethnic identities, customs, and way of talking. So it was little wonder that it took years for them to come under one umbrella under British rule. Similarly, the independence of Nigeria did not also occur suddenly. It took years of grassroots mobilization, aspirations, constitutional conferences by the elites to get the British to relinquish control of its then jewel of the tropics. At the forefront of the clamor for self-determination was the growing middle class of European-educated Nigerians who were realizing that despite attaining enough education, they were still considered intellectually inferior to the British. Well, 
The years of the 1920s saw a lot of Nigerians going to acquire education first out in Europe and then later America. And when they come back, the reality that faced them was different from what they expected. So naturally, the dissent against the colonial overlords started subtly and was reflected in changes in the addressing. Many Nigerians started taking pride in wearing traditional dress alongside European clothing, something that hitherto was considered uncivilized. They followed that up with giving their children traditional names, throwing away British-sounding names like Godwin, Ernest, Louis, Christopher, for indigenous names like Emeka, Kolawole, Ahmed. Next to that was the emergence of new African-led churches, breaking away from European churches over doctrinal and cultural differences. Polygamy was ever contentious. So also was the adoption of traditional songs, dancing it is into Christian worship. So we had a set of people who over their lifetime and the lifetime of their parents and their forefathers, they had seen that the environment thrived as a polygamous one. And now, having been colonized by the British and finding that the British frowned at polygamy and they found out that they had been absorbed into a church system requiring them to comply with such or else they will be termed or they will be seen as sinners. They couldn't take it anymore. So the churches started breaking away and we started having African churches as a different set of church, still believing in the same Christ, but having their own mode of worship, independent of the Church of England. Following the churches and the breakaway of the churches, an independent Nigerian press emerged to give voice to the otherwise voiceless, becoming the medium through which literate Nigerians voiced their criticism of the colonial government. It was this that brought the European educated Abat Macaulay to limelight, first as a respected journalist and much later as the father of Nigerian nationalism. His protest in Lagos and other parts of Nigeria, and definitely the opinion pieces he wrote in the Nigerian Daily News, such as the moral obligation of the British government to the House of Dosemo, and the crusade and fight that he termed Enrique must go, made him very influential in the politics of his days. However, the first salvo of war, one that really jolted the British, could be said to have been fired by the women of Abba, a city in the Igbo interland. Famously dubbed as the Women War, or what some have come to refer as the Abba riots, the women organized protests and demonstrations against a planned census that they considered would bring them under the poll task. The British did not listen until the whole, uh, the whole area descended into a state of chaos, a state of anarchy, over the course of November and December 1929. With women from Oweri to as far as Calabar laying siege and plundering factories and native courts. By the time the British could bring the whole area under administration again, 
55 women had been killed. The fact that such a wide demonstration was possible opened the eyes of many Nigerians to the falsehood of the previously ingrained notions that the British were to be obeyed without question. Prior to that, we should also note that all protests were local. Event, uh, all protests were local, such that there were riots which transcended the locality and went across an entire region was a new thing. But before the Abba riots, the British had become somehow sensitive in some forms to the need to have some Nigerians in governance. The 1922 constitution, the Clifford constitution, named after the then governor general of Nigeria, was the first to introduce elected African representation on a legislative council anywhere in British Africa. Of the 46 member council, three of the non-officials were to be elected in Lagos and one in Calabar. That was actually the first time that Nigerians had any representation in the way they were governed. Previously, everything relating to governance was entirely British dominated. We will break here and have some music from Evie Edna Ogoli.
Welcome back. That was Evie Edna singing Obaro, which means progress in the Isoko language. Uh, we should note that there are a lot of languages spoken in Nigeria each day, 250 languages in total. Isoko is one of the languages spoken. The great Isoko people are found majorly in the Delta and Bayesa states of Nigeria. They inhabit the creeks of the Niger Delta region the area largely accounting for the production of crude oil and gas in Nigeria. So thank you for listening to that. I hope you enjoyed it. So we start, we continue our discussion by talking about the nationalist movements. Economics has and will continue to shape and impact the course of human progress. The Great Depression that started in the United States around September 1929 took some time to work its way to the then colony and protectorate of Nigeria, but it did eventually. It reflected in the prices of exports, which fell significantly, and because the protectorate was dependent on the exports of products from the, uh, from the area, the economy of the protectorate faltered, and the attending hardship further incensed the growing numbers of Nigerians agitating for self-rule. Let's think about this a little. In the middle of this economic hardship, we have the continued exploitation of Nigerian labor in a way that profited the British and the erosion in traditional cultures and institutions. All this presented a very potent elixir that many nationalists became eye on. But on the traditional culture and institution, there was a clash. A clash between what was and used to be and what the British is instituting. The Nigerian Nobel playwright Wale Shoinka immortalized such an event in his Death and the King's Osman, which was a play that was based on a true story that happened in Oyo during the reign of Alaf in Shinyambola Ladigbolu and immediately thereafter at his death. The Oyo culture added that when the king dies, the Abobaku, or the king's horseman, must be killed in order to follow the king on his eternal journey. It was expected that the Abobaku would commit suicide by himself. The colonial authorities, hearing of that, prevented the Abobaku from committing suicide. They felt that that should not be allowed Using the British system, this simple act threw the community of balance, leading to a series of unpredicted events that ended up in the suicide of the Abobaku's son. So the community had to give up a youthful person in replacement for an older person. That was an incident where there was a clash between the British culture and the Yoruba culture. But moving to the eastern part of the country, the situation was no different. In the Igbo land, the clash of culture was similarly documented in the award-winning book by Chinua Achebe, Things Fall Apart, that he wrote in 1958. In that book, it depicts pre-colonial and colonial life in Igbo land, following the life of Okonko, the main character, as he navigates the pits and falls that the white man's arrival brought to his community, Umofia. Borrowing the words of William Butler Yeats' poem, The Second Coming, Chino Achebe uses the opening stanza 
to describe the clash of culture in Igbo land as resulting in things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. There's little else that I need to add, as this line summarized it all. Getting back to our discourse, by 1929, the nationalist movement was in full swing, with a basic goal of replacing the alien British government with an indigenous Nigerian government. However, there were divergent opinions on how this was to be achieved. Some wanted an immediate end by whatever means necessary, while others were more moderate, believing in a gradual transfer of political authority. Nationalism also showed up with regional sentiments as well. Kinship unions grew with membership based on place of origin. Labor unions, which first emerged on the Nigerian scene in 1912, with the establishment of the Southern Nigerian Civil Service Union increased. The Mechanics Union of Railway Workers, the Coal Workers Union, and the Nigerian Union of Teachers, amongst many others, were formed. This immediately became additional pressure groups on the colonial government. They were able to put pressure on the government through work stoppages and strikes. As more Nigerians were getting educated in Europe than previously, they had the opportunity to mix, interact, and share ideas with other African nationals, mainly from Gold Coast and Sierra Leone, while they were abroad. And their mixing with these other nationals gave them more motivation in understanding what is happening in the various domains that were under British rule and forming an ideology on how to supplement British, or how to supplant British rule. Student unions, such as the Ladi Poshulanke established West African Student Union, also joined the nationalism movement. While Macaulay's Nigerian National Democratic Party had dominated the Lagos scene, the epicenter of nationalist movement, the years prior to the 1930s, the emergence of the Lagos Street Movement in 1934, changed the entire scene and the direction of nationalism forever. Within four years, the movement grew and became the most powerful nationalist organization in Nigeria. It changed its name to Nigeria Youth Movement thereafter, and we'll continue our discourse after this music. Thank you. Yeah, 
Nigerians are very religious, it's not in doubt. The piece you just heard was the work of the then 10 year old Benita Okoje, titled Osamudi Ame, in her 2006 album, Child of God. I love listening and watching or listening to the voice of Benita. Benita comes from the Edo state, and that song was in Ishan language, which is typical in Edo state of Nigeria. And now we'll move on to talk about the foremost nationalists of the time, and actually those that saw Nigeria to independence. And the first name that we'll be talking about now is Namdi Azikwe. We just talked about the Nigeria Youth Movement. As the youth movement grew, so did the rancor within its political leadership. In 1941, Namdi Azikwe split from the Nigeria Youth Movement and formed its own organization three years later. And it titled, or it named the organization the National Council of Nigeria and Cameroon's NCNC. The NCNC grew and had constituencies all over Nigeria. It became the voice for the thousands of voiceless Nigerians. In 1945, for 37 days, there was a general strike in Nigeria over wages, which paralyzed the nation. Azikwe and the NCNC gave unflinching support for the general strike, and this brought the NCNC to popularity, with Zeke becoming known as the Great Zeke. That is an appellation that he came to be known with for the rest of his distinguished life. Over time, the largest group as at 1948 in the NCNC was the Igbo State Union suggesting a shift of some sort in the modus operandi of the NCNC from being a pan-Nigerian organization. Azikwe was also the president of, uh, of the ISU, the Igbo uh, State Union. 
We talk about Obafemi Awolowo. With the departure from the Nigerian Youth Movement of Zika and his team, the NYM became a shadow of its old self, but it continued to function in a much reduced capacity under the leadership of Obafemi Awolowo, who somewhat turned it to be more apologetic to the Yoruba cause. He managed the Nigerian Youth Movement till 1944, when he left to study law in London, where, a year later, he established the Egbe Omo Odudua, whose explicit goal was to foster unity among the Yoruba people. In 1948, he returned back to Nigeria and established branches of the association, that's the Egbe Omo Odudua, throughout the Southwest, laying the foundation for a soon-to-come political party that he named the Action Group. While Obafemi was commanding respect in the western part of Nigeria, and Namdi Azikwe was doing similar in Lagos and then in the eastern part of Nigeria. Tafawa Balewa was doing similar in the northern part of the country. The story of growth in ethnic identities was not different in the north, where Tafawa Balewa, along with Amino Kano and others, established the Bauchi General Improvement Union in 1943 and then changing its name to the Northern People's Congress, MPC, in 1949. The MPC was focused on maintaining regional autonomy for the North, a pursuit against being eclipsed by the development in the South. The MPC was considered docile in some form by its more active and radical members, leading to a breakaway from it of Malam Amino Kano who went ahead to form the Northern Elements Progressive Union, Nepal. In 1944, just like Obafemi Aulo did, Balewa went to study at the University of London and thereafter returned to Nigeria, continuing his participation in the MPC. In 1946, he was elected to the Northern House of Assembly and then to the Legislative Council in Lagos in 1947. As a legislator, he was a vocal advocate of the right of Northern Nigeria and the leading voice on the assistance by the North to become independent. Pausing a little bit and thinking about that. So here we have the Legislative Council comprising of representation from the North, the East, and the West. The Eastern representatives and the Western representatives were forging for self uh, rule and actually an independence from the British. But the North was not ready. They felt that for certain reasons, the North is not fully economically self-sufficient to be ready for self-governance. So as usual, a house divided against itself cannot stand. From these organizations, and we talked about the MPC, we talked about the action group later, we talked about the Nigerian Youth Movement. We talked about the NCNC. From these organizations, the seed of ethnicity was sown into the development consciousness of Nigerians, who started seeing themselves first and foremost as belonging to their ethnic group, and only thereafter being a Nigerian. By 1950, it was clear that the politics of Nigeria would be three-dimensional, one for the North, one for the West, and one for the East. 
It was this environment that gave birth to the 1951 McPherson Constitution in Nigeria, one that became the very first to recognize and allow for regional autonomy and a federal union. The topical issue of today in Nigeria is true federation. There have been a lot of people conversing that the federation and the constitution of Nigeria as is currently is deficient and that the regional powers or the regional government should be given more powers in order to rule themselves. Well, it was this constitution, the McPherson Constitution of 1951, that first introduced regional autonomy to the governance of Nigeria. Indeed, it extended the elective principle to the regions with provisions for a central government with a council of ministers. The immediate response of the ethnical unions was their transition to full-fledged political parties. They crave power at their different regional levels and becoming the bodies through which the four ministers from each region was elected to the Federal Council of Ministers that was sitting in Lagos. By the time the first general election in Nigeria's history took place, the NCNC was dominant in the eastern region. The Action Group was dominant in the west and the NPC in the north. This was not surprising that by the time the votes were counted, these parties had solid majority statuses in their region. The seed of ethnicity has been sown into the Nigerian uh, political system. By 1951, these political parties, now with representation in governance, began to push the colonial government more than ever before. In the West and the East, the request was for the colonial government to extend full internal self-governance to the regions. This was not popular in the North. The MPC was just simply not comfortable. In 1953 and 1954, separate constitutional conferences were held in Lagos to consider the agitation and the differences in position. The major issue at stake was whether the aspiration and needs of a group must necessarily be the same for another group. The outcome of these deliberations between the regional representatives were included in the 1954 Little Thing Constitution. Unfortunately, that same problem, that same question of whether what is good for one region must necessarily be good for another region is still a question that bedevils the Nigeria of today. For now, we take another music break as we take on the music of Q. Alagbe, Tonight I'm ready to work with somebody. Come and set the body for daddy. I was left, mama. Took the risk, my pussy. What I do, dead. What the mark, I do for if you want to shop my money, baby, you go shop my body too. I don't need a go, and if I blow my load, it's nothing wrong. Everything's in me, 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 everything's 
back in the love. Go to no rose, I both want to lose and for Zuya. Oh, you baby, life is back of who that is. Better for us, life is come for my new love. Oh, let me know. Tell me about you, so far we had featured music from the older generation not from the new Q dot is a refreshing difference is one of the Nigerian or, or is one of Nigeria's contemporary musician and is very unique in its own way if you had listened closely to that music you would have seen that it was rendered purely in Yoruba language the Yoruba language is spoken majorly by the people of Western Nigeria I hope you enjoyed that we continue our discussion about the journey of Nigeria to independence. Here we are in 1954. And here we've talked about the Littleton Constitution, which established Nigeria as a federation of three regions, with Lagos becoming the federal territory administered by the central government. With the 1954 Constitution, each region had the option of acquiring full internal self-governance in 1956, with a unicameral legislature of 184 members to be made up of representation from the various regions. The North was allocated 92 members to elect, the West 41, and the East 41. In 1957, both the East and West, they became self-governing. 
the North was to follow suit in 1959, two years later. In 1957, federal elections, the MPC won the plurality of votes in the Federal House of Representatives. Tafar Balewa, who was the vice president of the party, became the chief minister and the designated prime minister. But they didn't have a majority, so a coalition government was formed with the NCNC to make it national. Invitation was also extended to the action group as well. That was the 1957 election that threw up Balewa as the prime minister of the country, but still under the colonial administration. We did not finally achieve regional autonomy in 1959. A final election was held in that same year to determine who the political gladiators for the independent government of Nigeria would be. The MPC trumped all, winning the largest number of seats in parliament. The MPC-NCNC coalition formed government and the action group became the opposition. Tafoa Balewa remains as the prime minister, with Inamdi Azikwe becoming the governor general, a ceremonial title that made him the first indigenous representative of the Queen of England, who still became the titular head of the yet-to-be-independent country Nigeria, with a new title as well, Queen of Nigeria. On October 1, 1960, Nigeria became a fully sovereign state within the British Commonwealth, accomplishing the same feat that Ghana did in 1957, three years earlier. At the race course, the British lowered the British jack and the Nigerian flag, a vertical bicolor tri-band of green-white-green, designed by Michael Taiwo Akinkumi, was flown for the very first time. Tafar, the race course uh, is now known as Tafar Balewa Square, and it stands in the, cent in the center of downtown Lagos. It's a great place for anybody that is interested in tourism to visit. Actually, you can see the site where the British jack was lowered and the Nigerian flag was uh, raised up and where the instrument of office or the instrument of independence was handed over to the former prime minister. For people that go into Lagos, I encourage them to visit the Tafar Balewa Square. In his acceptance speech of that day, Tafar Balewa made mention of many things in terms of what his, uh, his expectation for Nigeria should be. He said, and I quote, Nigeria now stands well built upon firm foundations. In taking this decision, many have come to the conclusion that Tafar Balewa must have jumped at this position uh, too early because the Nigeria of today uh, does not seem to stand on firm foundation. Nigeria is still besaddled with a lot of ethnic motivated differences within the country. But as we were to see late in within a few years, the nation had a coup, the nation had counter-coup, it had a civil war, and there have been ongoing agitation for restructuring since then till now. So the question was whether Babalewa was right in saying Nigeria stood on well-built upon firm foundation. Well, we go ahead and talk about the 
post-independence Nigeria. In his speech, Baliwa set down the tone for what would become the focus of the new administration under the Nigerian leadership. Nigeria saw herself as a beacon of hope for other colonized people and felt it had the mantle to help release these people, Africans, from the yoke of colonization. He soon came to be regarded as a giant of Africa, a phrase that encapsulated all that the nation hoped to be, but is yet to achieve as of today. But things were not to be smooth sailing. The undercurrent of the ethnic politics that had been brewing for a while was to become full-blown. The new country, united in the clamor for independence, was actually much divided at many levels. It didn't take time for many to realize that what happened at independence was just a trade-off. They are simply traded off the yoke of the British health and elitist imperialism for a Nigerian leadership that had a widely different thoughts of what development and growth should be for the common man. It was a simple case of heads you win, tail I lose for the majority of the population. People started asking what it really means to be a Nigerian, especially as the nation, uh, the especially as the more than 100 similar, smaller ethnic group felt that they were being encompassed by the three major uh, groups. They started seeing elements of domination at the regional and federal levels. In the words of Falola and Eaton, Nigeria had become a state without a nation. This actually surmised what many people feel today about the country. There is more loyalty to the ethnic group, to the ethnic identity, than to the country as a whole. A lot of people see themselves first as either Yoruba, as Igbo, or as Hausa, before they see themselves as Nigerian. Economic independence did not rapidly follow the path of political independence in many ways. Nigerians are taught that immediately they become independent, they will be in charge of the economy of the nation. While the peasant in the interiors continue to be responsible for the production in this export-driven agrarian economy, the European farms were still staunchly holding the reins of the export business. They were not the producers, but the middlemen and the exporters who broker deals and monopolize the actual trade. The resultant effect of this was that the rural farmer though accountable for most of the work, was not benefiting as much from the business as the Europeans were. As we bring this, uh, uh, this session to an end, I would like to thank all our listeners for giving us the opportunity to discuss the Nigerian state. We hope to continue next week when we come your way with another refreshing episode of Nigeria, Good People, Great Nation. As you go about your activities, this week. Please remember to be kind to one another and find an opportunity to put a smile on someone's face. There is enough art in the world and every effort at reducing this is rewarding. Our discussions today have been largely influenced by different tests and we have the references that we can share with you. 
I will encourage us to lay our hands on some of this and get more information about the country. I leave you with the music of Aruna Ishola, widely known as Baba Gani Agba. Enjoy it. Until we meet next week, God bless. <laughs>
ಮಸಾಲಾ 